When God seems far, when the wicked seem to reign, call upon God. Trust in the eternal King. Have you ever wanted to cry out, God, where are you? You know God is real. You have some head knowledge about who God is, and you would say that you believe in him. But you have been confronted with evil in a way that causes you to wonder, where was God? Why does he seem so far? This may seem like an ungodly or even unchristian question to ask, and yet it's a very human question. It's a question that comes to the surface when faced with evil and injustice. Perhaps since the pandemic began, you've seen evil and injustice in the world more clearly than ever before. Perhaps you've witnessed evil and injustice against someone you know or someone you love. Perhaps members of WSBC from other countries have brought to your attention injustice in their own countries. Or perhaps other members of WSBC have brought to your attention injustice right here in Shanghai. In such situations, what do you do? Friend, do you pray? Do you go to God with your struggles and your doubts? You're not the only one with questions. You're not the only one pained by the injustice in the world. Around 3,000 years ago, a psalmist, most likely David, brought a prayer for justice before God. In this prayer, evil is not excused or taken lightly. It's taken very seriously. It's not a happy prayer. It's a prayer with real and raw emotion, but it ends with hope. It's a prayer that instructs us today as we consider the wickedness of humanity. It's a prayer in which we are led to move our gaze from the evil around us to the throne of God. So let's join the psalmist in his prayer. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 10. It's also printed in your bulletin. Psalm chapter 10. Psalm 10 is, is very likely a psalm of David. It's surrounded by other psalms of David. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, Psalms 9 and 10 formed one psalm. And Psalm 9 as you can see by the header, is a psalm of David. Our English translations today have kept with the original Hebrew version of having Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 separated, which makes sense considering the distinct tone of each psalm. Whereas Psalm 9 begins and ends with a joyful and confident tone, Psalm 10 can be considered a psalm of lament. It's a psalm that begins with sadness, but it ends with hope and trust. Please follow along as I read Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, 
and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Did you notice the honesty of this psalm? And did you notice how the attitude of the psalmist develops, how it changes from the beginning to the end of the psalm? I would like to sum up the truth that this psalm is conveying in one main idea for us today, and that is this. When God seems far, when the wicked seem to reign, call upon God. Trust in the eternal King. As we study Psalm chapter 10 today, we will break this sentence down together. The sentence can be broken down into four parts, and these will be the four points of the sermon. When God seems far, when the wicked seem to reign, call upon God. Trust in the eternal King. The first point sets the stage for the whole psalm. When God seems far, Look again at verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The psalmist comes to God with his questions. We don't know the background of this particular psalm, but the psalmist is looking on a situation in which it seems like God is far away. There's trouble in the land, and the psalmist is not able to do anything about it. We have this picture of God standing far away, a or even of hiding himself somewhere out of sight. I think we would agree that the psalmist knows that this is not the actual situation. We will see that by the end of this psalm. But this is what the psalmist is feeling. Perhaps you can relate. You may not have witnessed the, the same kind of evil that David would have witnessed in King Saul's court. But there are clear cases of injustice around you. 
and you wonder why God has not intervened. Perhaps in office politics, it's always the, the powerful and deceptive boss that seems to be getting his way. Perhaps you see problems in society, such as poverty and racism, and you feel helpless to do anything about it. And so you go to God, and you ask why. Is this what you do? When faced with evil and injustice, do you bring your doubts and questions before God? And I'm not actually encouraging you to think that God is far away, or that God is hiding himself. We know that that is not true. And yet there may come situations in our life when we are emotionally in the same place as the psalmist. We don't understand why God has not intervened. As much as we want to see God's hand in something, we can't. And so we ask God why. We can learn from the psalmist as well, this asking of why doesn't seem to be coming from an angry or proud attitude towards God. This asking of why is not accusatory, but it's an appeal to God to act. The psalmist is speaking out of his grief as he observes the injustice around him. It's interesting to note as well that the psalmist does not seem to be directly suffering at the hands of the wicked, and yet he cares for the afflicted around him. He cares for the plight of the poor and needy. So much of the time, our anger or our grief and injustice may be when the injustice is perpetrated against us. Even a, a minor act of injustice against me personally may call, cause me to be angry or annoyed. But what if the same thing happened to my neighbor? Would I care in the same way? And what of the other grave evil and injustice in the world? Do we share in the compassion that the psalmist feels for the plight of the needy around him. The psalmist's prayer is a prayer on behalf of the suffering around him. Brothers and sisters, would the Holy Spirit touch our own hearts so we would be similarly spurred on to heartfelt prayer for others? In preparing this sermon, I bought an ebook by Pastor Mark Rogop called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. In this book, Rogop walks through some of the Psalms of Lament and the Book of Lamentations in thinking through how we can learn to lament. He writes that in the Bible, lament is more than sorrow or talking about sadness. It is more than walking through the stages of grief. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. This psalmist is feeling real and raw emotions, and his prayer will lead to trust. But I also must ask the question, what if the pain is so deep, the doubt so real, that you stop praying? That may be a real temptation for some of you. Frogop deals with this in his book as well. He writes, It takes faith to pray a lament, to pray in pain, even with its messy struggles and tough questions, is an act of faith where we open up our hearts to God. Prayerful lament is better than silence. However, I've found that many people are afraid of lament. They find it too honest, too open, or too risky. But there's something far worse, silent despair. Giving God this silent treatment is the ultimate manifestation of unbelief. 
despair, lives under the hopeless resignation that, that God doesn't care, He doesn't hear, and nothing is ever going to change. People who believe this stop praying. They give up. However, lament directs our emotions by prayerfully vocalizing our hurt, our questions, and even our doubt. Turning to prayer through lament is one of the deepest and most costly demonstrations of belief in God. So brothers and sisters at WSBC, when God seems far, cry out to him in prayer. Bring before him your questions, bring before him your doubts. And as you do, remind yourself of the truth that he hears your prayers, he knows your thoughts, he cares for you and he cares for those you're praying for. And if you're not one of those in this place of lament and sadness right now, what would it look like for you to come alongside someone who is? There may be people here today who in their grief and affliction would have trouble putting words to a prayer. So how can you be praying for and with those who are in that kind of situation? Doubts and questions may be where this psalm begins but it will not be where this psalm ends. When God seems far, may summarize the first verse, but thankfully this psalm goes much deeper than that. And yet there are still more difficult and, and somewhat painful things to consider as we continue through this psalm. As we come to our second point, when the wicked seem to reign. In this section, the psalmist paints a picture of why it feels for him that God is so far away. Here we see the psalmist anguishes in seeing the injustice in the world as the wicked do whatever they please. We will consider both the attitude and the actions of the wicked. First, let's consider the attitude of the wicked in verses 2 to 7. Verses 2 to 7. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. We see here that the wicked are characterized by pride. They are arrogant in pursuing the poor. They are boastful of their desires. Not only do they have selfish desires, but they boast of these desires. In their pride, they do not seek God. In their pride, they puff at their foes. One can picture the wicked sticking up their noses and puffing out their chests. What the wicked think and say in this section especially display their pride. All the thoughts of the wicked are, there is no God. It's out of our pride, it's out of pride that the wicked do not seek God. And it's out of pride that they say, them to, they say this to themselves. Claiming that there is no God is a proud way to think. It's a proud way to live. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. 
in Psalm 14, just as in Psalm 10, the belief that there is no God leads to a wicked way of life. Do you see how claiming that there is no God basically puts oneself in the place of God? In my conversations with, with many young Chinese people, with university students, some would say there is no God. But there are also many more who would admit to the possibility there is a God, but they don't believe in God. Instead, they would say, oh, I believe in myself. Because for so many young people here in this country, and for so many people all around the world, in their pride, they have tried to make God irrelevant to their lives. Whether or not God exists, they will act like there is no God. They will act like they are God over their own lives. And if you look again at verse 6, verse 6 is, is strikingly and frighteningly like something only God should be able to say. In verse 6, the wicked says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. How could a person think this way? This wicked person has a proud, almost godlike attitude. Others may fall, but I will stand. I will last from generation to generation. I will outlive everyone around me. No one can make me do something I don't want to do. And it seems that the wicked are getting away with this attitude. Their proud rejection of God seems to have been ignored or overlooked by God. And so the psalmist wants to bring it to God's attention. Does, does God not care that his name is being mocked? Does God not care that the wicked are flaunting their wickedness, living as though God does not exist? The evil of the wicked continues to be displayed by their actions in verses 8 to 13. We read, He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Out of the proud hearts of the wicked flow evil and violent actions. To the psalmist, the wicked seems to be in control. They're committing murder unpunished. We have the image of a lion lurking, waiting for his prey. The wicked seek to take advantage of the weakest of the weak. They don't fight against those who can fight back. They look for the weak and defenseless. In the classic black and white movie, It's a Wonderful Life, most of the movie shows the hero seeking to stop the meanest and richest man in the town of Bedford Falls from gaining control of the entire town. The way that this mean and rich and very proud man would gain control of the town would be for him to control the money of the town. 
for him to control the money of the poor for his own advantage. Perhaps he offers loans or offers his, his low-quality housing. He lurks to seize the poor when they're at their weakest. And there's a clear point in the movie when it appears that evil will win. In the eyes of the psalmist, it, it looks like the wicked are succeeding. We see in verse 10 that the helpless are crushed. They sink down. They fall under the might of the wicked. Perhaps you've been confronted with similar situations. Perhaps there's a situation at your workplace in which certain people in leadership are using their power to deceive others and to make more money. Perhaps it seems that the poor will always be poor, whereas the rich will continue to use their riches to take advantage of others. And yet, it's interesting that even for the wicked, who supposedly deny God's existence, it seems that they may have just a bit of guilt, just a bit of understanding that they're doing what is wrong. They have a hard time being 100% atheist. And so the evil person says, God has forgotten. God will never see it. One can picture a person robbing a bank, concealing the evidence, and then laughing to himself, saying, no one will ever know. But in his heart, he knows that perhaps that's not true. Perhaps God saw. For any of us reading this psalm, we would probably think of the wicked in this psalm as, as people who do the crimes that get them on the news. We think of the murderers and the rapists and the drug dealers. But we must remember what is at the core of why this person is characterized as wicked. It's because this person, out of his or her pride, rejects God. So if you're here today and you do not believe there is a God, or you think that it doesn't really matter whether or not there is a God, do you realize that this kind of thinking already is wicked? It's evil because it's a rejection of all that is good and true. I don't want to speak out of an attitude of pride because for those of us who are Christians, we all were wicked and deserving of God's punishment. Paul makes that case in Romans chapter 3. Let me read for you Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This sounds a lot like the wicked person in Psalm chapter 10, doesn't it? In fact, Romans 3, verse 14 is a quotation of the Greek translation of, of Psalm 10, verse 7. Can you imagine the shock that an upstanding Jewish citizen might have felt hearing Romans 3 read, knowing the context of quotations that vividly describe the wicked? This upstanding Jew would never have thought that the wicked person described in Psalm 10 could be referring to him. And yet the wicked person described in Psalm 10 is part of Paul's argument that all of us, 
both Jews and Gentiles, are sinners. The wicked person characterized in Romans 3 and the wicked person characterized in Psalm 10, that, that was us. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that, that is you. Your pride and your rejection of God is, is a crime worthy of death, worthy of punishment, even if you're not guilty of some of the other sins described in this psalm. You must turn away from your sins and turn to Jesus who died for your sins. Don't try to convince yourself that God doesn't see you. It's not true. It may seem that you can live the way that you want to live. It may seem that the world will play by your rules. But your rule of your own life will not last. This psalm does not end with the reign of the wicked. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I must urge you to stop living as if you are God over your own life. There is only one true God. And as we'll see as we walk through the rest of this psalm and all throughout the Bible, this God is the only one worthy of our trust and the only one worthy of our worship. That brings us to the third section of this psalm. The third point is to call upon the God who sees. Here we look at verses 12 to 15. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Here the psalmist calls on the Lord to act. And there's a boldness that we did not see at the beginning of the psalm. The wicked person said that God has forgotten, but the righteous psalmist calls on God not to forget. The psalmist appeals to God with truth that the psalmist knows about who God is. The psalmist knows that God will judge, and so he appeals to God saying that the wicked do not believe they will be judged. The wicked do not believe they will be called to account. When will God judge the wicked? And even though the psalmist has not yet seen God act, he proclaims in faith that he knows God sees. Even though God has not yet judged the wicked, the psalmist knows that God has taken note of it. Furthermore, the psalmist knows that God already has proven his faithfulness. God already has shown himself a helper of the fatherless. God has helped those who have sought his help. In verse 15, the psalmist calls on God to break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. This may seem like a somewhat violent request. And yet, as one pastor who preached on this psalm, Jim Hamilton, noted, this actually is a loving thing to pray. Through a kind of arm-shattering judgment, not ending in death, this might prompt the wicked to fear God and turn to Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. Perhaps not a literal arm shattering, but perhaps some sort of trial or difficulty in the life of an evil person could cause that person to see that they are not God. They can be moved. They do not have the power to rule over their lives. 
in thinking on application for us today, consider how knowing God, knowing that God sees, spurs us to confidently call upon the Lord. If God were truly hiding his face, he would not see us. But know the psalmist knows that, that actually God does see. God knows. God sees the evil of the wicked. God sees the injustice in the world. And if God sees it, because God is all good and all powerful, there is an expectation that God will act. Perhaps when faced with injustice, you feel alone. Some of you have been involved in particular ministries or have sought to care for the weak or the poor. And you've seen injustice, you've seen affliction that many around you have never witnessed. Perhaps it was injustice against the widow, the orphan, or the sojourner. Perhaps it was based on race, or perhaps it was against the poor. Perhaps it was religious persecution. It may be difficult for others to empathize with your experience or care in the same way you do unless they saw what you saw. And yet remember that God sees. God knows the plight of the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. God knows the affliction of the poor. God sees crimes in which there are no other witnesses. Brothers and sisters, we can, like the psalmist, boldly approach the throne of God knowing that he sees. We can, like the psalmist, appeal to God's character. Not only does God see, but he is all-powerful. Not only does God see, but he is all-compassionate. Have you considered how your prayers of praise affect your prayers of petition? In other words, how does the way that you praise God for who he is affect how you ask God to act? May our understanding of God continue to grow and continue to inform every aspect of how we pray. And consider if you're praying a prayer of lament, how the lament continues to develop by the end of the prayer. Prayer of lament doesn't end in the same downcast place that it began. You may start with real and raw questions, but God can use our very act of praying to be drawing our hearts into greater trust of Him. Brothers and sisters, let us pray that prayers that seemed hopeless would end in hope. Let us pray that our wavering prayers would lead to greater trust and confidence in God. That leads us to our fourth and final point. Trust in the eternal King. Here we look at verses 16 to 18. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Psalm 10 started on an emotional low, but in the end, the psalmist confidently declares his trust in God. In contrast to the wicked man who thinks he shall not be moved throughout all generations, here the psalmist praises the Lord, the eternal king. The Lord is king forever. Nations may come and go, but the Lord will remain unmoved. The Lord is the Lord who sees. The Lord is the Lord who hears. He hears the desires of the afflicted and he strengthens their hearts. The desires of the wicked are evil, 
The desires of the afflicted in verse 17 are desires that please the Lord. God listens to these desires. God will do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. There's a finality to this judgment. The eternal king will judge in a way that wicked men will no longer strike terror on the earth. There will come a day when evil and wickedness will be put to an end. How is that possible? It's only possible if the eternal king puts an end to the wickedness of man. The psalmist hopes and praises God for the judgment to come, in which wickedness will finally and forever be judged. And when will this be? A month ago, we celebrated Christmas, the birth of King Jesus. King Jesus is the son of David, the eternal king who David called Lord. He took on human flesh, died, and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. King Jesus now sits at the right hand of God the Father, and he will return to judge. When Jesus returns to judge, it will be in power and in might. The return of King Jesus in judgment is when wickedness will be put to an end. The return of King Jesus in judgment is when man who is of the earth will strike terror no more. For those believers who need strengthening of heart, and we all need strengthening of heart, please listen to how Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16, describe Jesus' return. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. For those who do not worship Jesus, this is a warning. The wrath of God will be unleashed on the nations. For those who do worship Jesus, this is a picture of joy and hope. This is a balm in your affliction. Our true king, the word made flesh, is the righteous judge. Brothers and sisters, King Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. He is worthy of all our trust. When, when God seems far, we return to the truth of who Jesus is what he has done, and what he will do. There is evil in this world, but take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do praise you, for you are the eternal God. You are the eternal King. And Lord, we praise Jesus for who he is. We thank you that Jesus will return again to judge. Lord, we do pray uh, that we would live in hope in light of that day. 
Lord, would you comfort the discouraged and afflicted here today? Would you help them turn their eyes to Jesus? And Lord, would we continue to, to do so throughout the week and the weeks to come? Would we look forward to Christ's return? Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.